Tēnā koutou, no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to our first Sunday morning Q&A for 2024. I'm Jack Tame. This morning, Chloe Swarbrick and her plan for getting the Greens into government. I don't think solely that electoral success is the only way to facilitate change in this country. Then Wellington's water woes put a... <sighs> on summer in the capital. Somewhere along my route I'll see a new lake pop up. It's been one further up, there's been a couple in the zigzag. So you need to wear gumboots to work really, don't you? <laughs> I'm just like, all this leaking water. We will have that story for you soon, but we begin this morning with social development. With fresh unemployment stats out this week, the government says it is committed to getting more people off benefits and into work. Louise Upston is the new Minister for Social Development and Employment. Congratulations on your, uh, on your appointment and welcome to Q&A. Thanks Jack, it's great to be here. Give us your vision. What do you want to achieve as the Social Development Minister? So I'm really clearly focused on supporting job seekers into work. Um, unfortunately the report that we've seen this week, particularly for young people, if someone goes on to welfare under the age of 20, uh, this recent report has said on average they will spend 24 years on welfare. Um, listen, I've, I've been um, a solo mum on the DPB for a period of time um, and it's really, it was really the toughest time of my life. Uh, and so I want to see more New Zealanders connected with the opportunities of work um, and particularly uh, those who are currently on the job seek benefit um, because what we do know, when people are in work, they are better off uh, not just economically but socially. Uh, social connections, uh, better health, better mental health and so that is absolutely my, my priority one, is supporting more people off the job seeker benefit and into work. Let's look at the numbers then. So according to the latest stats for the quarter ending December, 109,000 people are on the work ready job seeker benefit. So what will that number be under your government? Yes, yeah, so first of all, I actually focus on the total job seeker numbers. And I do that because although there's two categories, there's work ready and there's health condition and disability, um, those on health conditions mm. and disabilities, the intention is that they'd be ready for work in two years. Mm. And I think it's really important that the team at Work and Income start working with them now mm. um, so that they are ready, so that they are providing um, training opportunities and they are building the skills and capabilities so that they are ready to be in work in the future. So the total job seeker numbers, to, to, to take your measure, are yes. at about 190,000 yes. right now. What will they be under your government? Uh, so first of all, the increases won't be what the previous government allowed to happen. 20,000 in the last year alone. Let's talk about so, your government. What, yep. what will you achieve? 190,000 at yep. the moment? What should it be Absolutely. Under your so I will have a target. Um, you're probably aware, Jack, that the, the government at the moment is working on what will be a series of measures that we can demonstrate to New Zealand that we are delivering as when a country. When will you have target? Uh, it'll be pretty soon, actually. Um, I'm already doing work on it. And there's, uh, so the first thing is to stop the massive increases that mm. we've seen under Labor's watch. We, we are facing some challenging economic mm. times. So Treasury's forecast is that that number will keep going up mm. until January next year, peaking at just under 200,000. Mm. Um, so I want to make sure that number is coming down. Um, and so we'll set yeah, a target. We'll, we'll see what the target is. We will yeah. set a target and that won't be far so, off. So, so one of the ways uh, you've said you'll assist people into work is through the reintroduction of the 90-day trial periods for yes. employers. Yes. What evidence does your government have that those trial periods will help people on benefits transition into work? Yeah, so what we do know is a lot of people who who are on welfare currently on the job seeker benefit, mm. 
um, they have what I call lumps and bumps. There might be some challenges that have kept them out of the workforce for a period mm. of time. L let's face it, if you haven't had a job for two years uh, or more, it will be challenging for you to reconnect. And I want to make sure that employers uh, are willing to give someone a chance. Right. If I think about my time as Minister of Corrections, we got 2,000 former prisoners into work. And it's that balance of making sure employers mm. are willing to take a chance on someone. So, and for some businesses, that 90-day trial was sufficient barrier. Yeah. So not having that barrier, what, what, I think, is useful. So what evidence do you have that, that those 90-day trial periods are actually an effective way of getting people from benefits into work? Well, because we do know, if you look at the groups that are overrepresented on welfare stats, uh, they tend to be women, uh, they tend to be Māori, um, prisoners, as I've Doesn't talked about. Doesn't answer the question, though. What, what, what evidence do you have that the 90-day trial periods are well, an effective way of doing that? Any employer that I have spoken to recently who talks about the fact that is one of the issues that stops them from taking on staff. And if on top of so that... just employer feedback is the evidence you're yeah, basing that on? That's that's what I'm referring to. Right. So and, under and the previous National Government, Treasury commissioned a detailed report on the 90-day trial periods. Have you read that research? I haven't, no. I, I went through it. Um, page five, quote, this is under the previous national government, yep. we find no evidence that the 90-day trial policy increased the probability that a new hire by a firm was a beneficiary or job seeker beneficiary. Yeah, so Treasury provides advice all the time, as our government agencies do. So, at the so end what, of the what, day, did that, what did the authors of that report get wrong? Well, at the end of the day, ministers make decisions, mm. and I'm really clear, my priority is to support job seekers into so work. This is, this is a report no... about those trial periods yep. from, from, when, from when National was last in government. Yep. You haven't even read it, but the authors say that your point is fundamentally wrong. Yeah, so there's not one thing that is going to support us get, getting those numbers down. 190,000 mm. New Zealanders on the job seeker benefit. They're missing out the, on the opportunities and choices that work. There's no one thing. I think everyone yeah, would agree. There's with no that. one thing. But, but the combination but the report of factors commissioned under the previous national government that had a similar policy in place said that this one thing is totally ineffective. Well, uh, another thing you're going I to think introduce. Time, I, I think time will tell on that. And as I say. I am relentlessly focused on how we support mm. people into work. One of the things that I'll be doing, Jack, is also focus, focusing on businesses and mm. employers. Uh, I've already met with um, the Auckland Chamber of Commerce, for example. We're really keen to work together mm. on how we can support particularly small businesses, and that's where that 90-day trial um, affects them, so don't to work with employers. Look, there's, there's, as, a, as a new minister, two months in, uh, there's masses of reports. Uh, that's mm. not one that I have, I found time. have read. Yep, absolutely, I get that. Um, I'm really clear mm. about the social outcomes report that has come out just this week mm. that says 24 years for a young person on welfare, that is not something don't I think, think anyone is acceptable. Is disputing that. No, yep. I don't think anyone's disputing that. So, uh, another way that you're going to help to bring people from, from, from receiving benefits into work is with a new sanctions system. It's a traffic light system for sanctions. So you've got your green light, your orange light, your red light. Will the number of people sanctioned by your government increase or decrease compared to the previous one? So, so let's just explain for people what sanctions are. So there is a mutual obligation for someone receiving welfare um, to do their bit. Mm. So for someone on a job seeker, it might be having an up-to-date CV, mm -hmm. participating in training, uh, applying for jobs, 
yeah. going to a job You've got to make an effort. We Absolutely. All we all understand that. So, yeah. so will the so, number of people sanctioned, beneficiaries sanctioned, increase or decrease under I, I would expect it will increase. It's a consequence right. of people not taking actions to help themselves. And we should note that it's significantly decreased under the previous government relative to the previous 50, national government. 50%. Yeah. So what evidence do you have that sanctions are an effective way of getting people into work? Yeah, so, so exactly that. So we now have 190,000 people on the job seeker benefit, mm. 67,000 more than six years ago. And if we look at the use of sanctions or mm. consequences for people not taking the steps they need mm. to take to find work, um, that's 50% more. You've read the report from the Wealthy Expert Advisory Group? Yes. Quote, there is little evidence in support of using obligations and sanctions to change behaviour. Rather, there's research indicating they compound social harm and disconnectedness. What did that report get wrong? Yeah, so there's a range of research, and, and I acknowledge that. Um, what, what did but, they get wrong about that? Well, as I say, there's a, there's a range of views around mm. uh, consequences. So what, did, what you, was wrong about that, about that line from the Wealthy Expert I'm, I'm not group? saying it's wrong. It's a ra there's a range of views. So you agree with them that, that, that there's little evidence in support of sanctions? There's a range of views. They have one view. My view is very clear. You said clear. you agree with that line. My view, Jack, is mm. very clear. We have seen an absolute blowing out of welfare dependency mm. under the watch of Carmel Cipollone and the Labor government. I don't think that's good enough. And so, I want to make sure... So the, the traffic light mm. policy that you have referred to isn't just about sanctions. Part of having a system like that is to look at what is the risk that someone is going to be longer term on welfare. So, 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 so it's also about what additional support do they need? So what happens if, if someone gets the red light? Yep. The, the worst scenario, they have their benefits suspended. What happens to them? Yeah, so, so you, there's a graduated series of sanctions. Yeah, if they're on the red light, they're absolutely now, at the worst end. What yeah. happens to them? So there's a graduated series. Part of the addition mm. to the, the sanctions regime that we've proposed with that um, there's two non-financial sanctions. Mm. So one is uh, money management, for example, so they wouldn't get their benefit uh, cut mm. or reduced. That's particularly um, of interest but, to but families, with, families right? with children. Mm. No, so the, so the maximum uh, is that there could be a 50% reduction. For families with children, but so, for, for, fam for, for beneficiaries without children, the maximum is the maximum, right? Yes. So, so what happens if someone has their benefit totally cut? Yeah, so... so what, what happens to them? Uh, what happens with many of them is they then, I think the figure is 88%, mm. then comply with their obligations. What so about the 12%? Uh, well, that's, that's a consequence. So what, if you think, if you think about they, the thousands how, yeah, of low-income taxpayers mm. who are assisting to fund the welfare system, they think it's quite acceptable that people play their part to find mm. a job. But and, and that's common sense. I'm just sense. interested, if, some, if someone has their, their benefit card, in, in an absolute worst-case scenario, yep. how would they pay to survive? Well, there, there'll, be a, there'll be a range of options. Like the, what? But the welfare no, system... What, what are those options? The welfare system what, what is are those mutual options? obligations, yeah. and if they are not, if they are not fulfilling mm. their obligations, then what are it those is options? quite clear about the fact that the welfare system will not Sorry, support them not beyond question. that point. What, what are their options? Well, they might go with family, they might go with friends, there might be um, others that look after them mm. um, for, you know, community... F family and friends, community. except, of course, the WEAG report, quote, that you agreed with, said there's research indicating they compound social harm and disconnectedness. So family and friends might not be an so, option. Yeah, what but what look would be the impact on the child with the 50% sanction on, yeah. a, on a parent? What would be the impact on the child if, if a parent 
had their benefit cut by 50%. Yeah, so that's why I've um, proposed two additional non-financial yeah. sanctions. The money management, for example. Yeah, and, and community uh, But you still experience. have that option for a 50% cut to a parent beneficiary yeah, of I, the child. So, so I want to know, in that worst case scenario... Well, I'm not anticipating. Is, I'm not anticipating that will be used um, in the same so, range that it was. But, because, it will be, but it will be used? Yep, and it's used now. So what happens, and it was used so, under Labor. So what happens to those children? Well, their, their families, as I said, 88% then comply with their obligations. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a final resort. It's mm. a last resort. So, so I, I don't, want you, I don't want you leave, I don't want to leave the impression that that is something that happens mm. very often. So if you look at those... But it does those, happen and it will happen under your government. It does. And, and, and it's, it, and it and it's, a, final, it's a final step. Yeah. Look, if you so, think about so, the working uh, income frontline staff, they work incredibly hard... Yeah to support people to do their bit. But there will be some yeah. that actually refuse to. And there should be a consequence. And for, that's their, only, for their children as well. That's only fair mm. to taxpaying New Zealanders uh, that there is a is consequence. Is it fair to their children? Well, as a parent, uh, I, I think it's really important that parents it, with children that's not the question, take no. their is responsibility. It, is it fair to their well, children? Yeah. The option is that they, that they comply with the obligations. They're Kids not, should choose fair parents. They're not, they're not um, unusual. Mm. They're not unusual and they're not onerous obligations. Mm. And I think that's the important part so of it. Are, are, benefit levels at their, uh, are benefit levels at their current rates enough for beneficiaries to live with dignity? Well, it, it's challenging to live on, on a benefit at, at whatever rate, which mm. is why we've committed to annual mm. increases. Um, but it's tough. I'm, I'm not going to pretend is for it, a moment... Are they enough to live with dignity, do you think, at, at the current levels? Yeah, I do. You think they I are? I do, yeah. Okay. And, so, and, so and we've government... seen annual increases. They'll continue mm. under our government to be increased annually. So, yes, speaking of the increases, you, you mm. are changing the way that benefit increases yes, are calculated, are. from indexing them to wage... Uh, from wage increases to uh, inflation instead. Yes. So on the current projections, will that mean beneficiaries this term receive more or less money than they would have under the previous system? Well, it, it very much depends on what happens so with under both the current of those. Projections, yeah. Yeah, so, on the current projections, what, yeah. what, what, so, what is it? So CPI mm -hmm. is, is likely to be slightly less uh, and on for some it might mean you know $2 a week, $1 or $2 a week. The important part no, so, with so, CPI just to be totally indexing, clear, is it will beneficiaries under the changes you've made receive more or less money this term on current projections than they would have under the previous system? They're likely system. to get less, right. marginally. Yep. So, so in terms so, of indexing, I mean, can yeah. I just explain why why we index? Please. So 31 years of the last 35, mm. we have indexed increases um, to benefits uh, based on CPI, mm. and that is to to accurately reflect the costs. Uh, that beneficiary households face. So, so why do we index superannuation to wages? Well, they're, they're two very different things. Um, but, but, but why? So if, if, it's, if it's good enough to index benefit, uh, benefits to, to CPI, yep. why, why, why is it okay to do superannuation to wages? Well, CPI for beneficiaries is directly linked to um, the, the real costs uh, that they face. Do, do people traditionally, over those decades that you've, that you've, that you've cited... Would they have received more money as beneficiaries if their increases had been indexed to wages or CPI? Uh, I don't have that figure in front of me, um, but, but I do know more mm. traditionally CPI is used. And it was interesting with the previous government, uh, they moved from CPI 
um, to wages mm. uh, and then they moved back to CPI and then were going to decide year by year. Oh, the, I, I think mean, what's they, really they, important... They moved it cons- to wages because, because wages would give beneficiaries more money. I mean, Consistency, I mean, though, I think to, is really important. Well, well I mean, you're the one who's changed it. So, no, so if consistency is important. So wage growth is projected by... Um, I think Treasury, uh, the Reserve Bank, in the half-yearly economic update in December, uh, wage growth was projected to outstrip CPI. So by an analysis in the New Zealand Herald, I think beneficiaries will be more than $30 worse off every week by the end of this term, more than $50 worse off by the end of the decade than they would have been under the previous system. And that's your decision. Yeah, and actually, I want to focus on having fewer people Mm. receiving welfare and have more people in work. They will have higher incomes in work Mm. and better life outcomes, not just for them, but for their children. So I, I that's where my focus is. There's a fundamental point, though, right? At a time when both Treasury and the Reserve Bank are forecasting a significant increase in unemployment as a result of broader economic conditions, yes. you are cutting the increases to benefits. What does that say about your government's values? So I, what I would say about our government's values is very, very clearly we want to have fewer people on welfare. Uh, we will not tolerate people being mm. stuck and dependent on welfare not just for a few years, but for a few decades. But many of so the people, our focus will be people, on supporting people off welfare. Many of the so people who are going to be income. made unemployment during this tricky economic period may be on benefits for the first time in their lives. Yep. And at the time they experience that, your government has made a change, meaning they will get less money than they would have under the previous system. And, and the reality of the economic times we're in mm. is there are also households who are doing it really tough out there on low and middle incomes. Mm. So the cost of living, absolutely, Mm. is affecting Kiwis all over New Zealand. Mm. Uh, And so what we want to do is to make sure that the annual benefit increases reflect the actual costs Mm. and increases in costs that people face. But my priority is to actually help people into a life of more opportunity and more choice that comes from work. We're out of time. Thank you very much. Good luck in your uh, portfolio. And we look forward to seeing those targets soon. Thanks, Jack. Louise Upston. So, you know, as well as watching our show on TVNZ+, you can also find our interviews on YouTube. Just search NZQ&A and we will pop right up. After the break, the Greens' path to government. As James Shaw steps down, we ask Chloe Swarbrick what she would do differently as the Greens' co-leader. Hoki Maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. A Green Party member in Dunedin is challenging MP Chloe Swarbrick for the party's co-leadership. Swarbrick is still widely considered the front-runner, having won and then held the Auckland Central electorate and consistently featuring in preferred Prime Minister polls. But I ask her why she thinks she's the best person to become the new co-leader. I believe that the role of politicians is to hold a mirror out to society and to empower the citizenship, basically, to say to New Zealanders that, hey, you know what, do not leave politics to the politicians, because politics is made to look incredibly complicated. And in fact, that's how we've ended up alienating and ostracising many people from being engaged in decisions that impact and saturate our daily lives. The ramifications of which we see represented in the greatest inequality that we've ever seen on record, the housing crisis, the biodiversity crisis, the climate crisis, and, of course, the issues currently confronting us with regard to polarisation. So I think that we have an incredible opportunity right now to unify Aotearoa New Zealand and to push for the kind of country and systems that all of us deserve, which ultimately uphold people and planet as opposed to exploiting them. But why are you the best person to do that? 
because I believe that I have demonstrated over the past two elections in 2020 and 2023 doing what everybody thought was impossible, obviously, against the red wave and then the blue wave, uh, building our base for Auckland Central and the community along the way. And in doing so, we've also built the capacity of our activists and our community to solve many of our own problems. In turn, kind of microdosing hope and showing people that things are possible, better things are possible when all of us work together. And in turn, we've continued to build power. And that's demonstrated in the fact that we now have the largest ever Green Caucus that we've ever seen. Didn't James Shaw do the impossible by getting the Zero Carbon Act through with the support of National? Absolutely. And, you know, I'm a big fan so, of that So work. what qualities distinguish you from James Shaw? Well, I think that James and I have similarities with regard to our ability to work across the aisle. Mm. Uh, but I would say the thing which James and I have actually um, also discussed, without giving away all too much of those discussions, uh, is the fact that I uh, have very much staked my claim in politics with movement building. That is the thing that I am most interested in. Mm. My very strong theory of change and one of the reasons Reasons, the many reasons that I'm in the Green Party mm. alongside the alignment of Kopapa is the fact that I believe that no one person can make change alone. Mm. And that means emboldening and working with and building up capacity of civil society to be able to hold politicians to account to move things forward. Okay, then let's talk about movement building. What is the Greens' path to government? Our part of government is building an ever stronger mandate and that means winning more seats uh, and how we do that is by growing our Green Party membership. Uh, I also think that as part of that process of building the Green Party membership is that I also want to see more of our local mm. branches and provinces around the country building up capacity to build local campaigns mm. and to win local campaigns So how, how many more seats are we talking? Uh, well, we're talking about what it takes to lead a government, And what does Jack. it take? Uh, well, I mean, obviously we need at least 61 to form a government and there'll be any uh, kind of iteration of uh, working with our allies, whether that be Te Pāti Māori or, of course, our friends in Labour. Uh, and to that effect, it's about building the strongest possible Green mandate for that change. So, so how many seats should the Green Party have with you as co-leader at the next election? I think that that's kind of a bit of a here nor there arbitrary... No, you're the one who wants to build a movement. Strategy. Yeah, I do want to so, build so, a movement. So give me some, give me some quantifiable measures as I to what that, that movement should look like. I think this is this is where we lose sight of the wood for the trees, to be quite frank with you, Jack. What I am interested in is reminding people of the power that they themselves wield out there in mm. civil society and the towns and cities across our country to hold politicians to account. What, pow what, I'm pow not what power I does the Green Party have right now? I just want to finish this answer, Jack, because I mm. think it is a really important one. I don't think solely that electoral success is the only way to facilitate change in this country. So if you'll indulge me, and I can just unpack that mm. theory of change, right? You think it's good to be in opposition? That's not what I'm saying at all. Right. I think that there are two main ways that you can go about bringing about change. Mm. One is, of course, the focus on structural and systemic change, right? That's our legislation, regulation, funding, taxation, mm. incentives, subsidies. You're the a party blueprint. in Parliament. Yep. Yes, exactly. But what I don't think we spend anywhere near enough time talking about is culture. Culture, from a design thinking perspective, is about a shared set of values. And I don't think that we are having explicit enough discussions about the kinds of values that we want leading our country. So if we talk about how we engage and what the levers mm. of power are to change our cultural landscape, they are things like education. They are things like community building. Mm. They are things like media, including social media, the capacity to discuss these ideas and to inform ourselves. And when you focus on building power in that cultural sphere, mm. all of us deciding the kind of future that you want to have, then we create an environment conducive to that structural and that systemic change. So I'm focused on reminding New Zealanders of their power, that politicians work for them, not the other way around. OK, let's, let's talk about structural change mm -hmm. and, and working within the parliamentary system. So apart from a grand coalition, uh, the Greens and National were the only parties with enough support at the last election to form a two-party coalition. 
would you personally have supported entering negotiations with National? Look, I think that we've always said that we're open to discussions. We always have an open door. So you, you door. would have done that? I think that I want to be really careful here because I don't want a clickbait headline that pops up saying that Chloe Swarbrick is saying that we would entertain some form of uh, working with a right-wing party that had committed to reopening oil and gas drilling in Maui Dolphin mm. habitats, to mining on conservation estate, to uh, scaling back our climate contributions to nationally determined contributions. So, so let's think about what you could have stopped. If you'd entered that two-party coalition, you could have stopped, potentially, National from reopening oil and gas in an area that you say is affected by uh, Maui dolphins. Uh, you could have stopped them from scaling back some of their climate commissions. You could have stopped them from scrapping the Maori Health Authority. You could have stopped them from introducing the Treaty Principles Bill. You could have stopped them from peering back our world-leading uh, tobacco legislation that disproportionately causes harm and deaths in the communities you purport to represent. Mm. Why wouldn't you reach across the aisle? Why wouldn't the National Party reach across the aisle in much that same vein if we're speaking about how we go about building Because the coalitions. National Party has options. The yeah. National Party has options. The National Party can go with ACT. Mm -hmm. The National Party can go with a three-party coalition with ACT and New Zealand First, whose policies, many of which mm -hmm. you abhor, mm -hmm. the Greens had no option. And I want to take us back to first principles. No, 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 here, no, right? no, no. no, no this, is, that, this is an important point mm. because it's about how the Green Party make decisions, right? Mm. We are the most fundamentally democratic party inside of our parliamentary system. Mm. So this would not be a decision for our co-leaders alone, nor just for our caucus. But as co-leaders, you have a responsibility membership. to lead it. So I'm asking, mm -hmm. why wouldn't you reach across the aisle to try and stop some of those changes? We would have those same discussions in public as we would have in private. And I think that you can see from my track record as a member of parliament, as an activist and as an advocate, that I have always been willing to say the same thing in public and in private. So, hey, if the National Party were interested in scrapping all of their uh, incredibly reductive, reactive and backward-looking agenda, then there'd be a different party. Party. If and of you, course if you had been co-leader at the last election, would you have reached across the aisle and contacted National? I would assume that there would have been conversations. But if you were the co-leader and you hadn't heard anything from National, would you take the initiative to reach out to National? Again, Jack, I think that you're kind of missing the point no, this here, is about which your is leadership. the agenda that all of us come to, it's Parliament, about, it's in a, order to progress. Yes, it's, it's about your leadership and it's about the policies that are important to you. So, if faced with that scenario, a very realistic scenario... Hmm. Would you, as co-leader, reach out to the National Party to consider negotiations? Sure. Jack, what I can say is that I would absolutely reach across the aisle to the National Party in the same way that we have been doing in the public sphere mm. to say that we are absolutely opposed to their agenda to pour yeah. oil and gas on the climate this crisis is, fire this is, and to I mean, these are the negotiations your party could have had but didn't because many in your party are so opposed to the idea, the mere idea of working alongside the National Party. I think that you're missing the point which I raised in my previous answer, which is actually how we go about building power in this country. Mm. I think we spend far too much time talking mm. about political parties and political party leaders. And I think that that misses Chloe, the point Chloe, of the power that exists. You're in Parliament. This is a parliamentary system. If you want to create change within the parliamentary system, I appreciate what you're saying about grassroots-led um, leadership and, and about culture change mm -hmm. uh, from, from, from relatively disempowered communities coming together, but you're in Parliament. Mm -hmm. This is how the system works. And dealing with the chips as they fall, absolutely, I take that on board. But the broader message that I want to get out here is that I think that we spend far too much time, especially in the media, talking solely about political parties and political party leaders and not about the people who put them there and about the power that everyday people have to force change every single day. Because that, ta that change, politics, doesn't just happen every three years with a general election. And that is precisely what you will see from the Greens in the coming three years. 
under and in response to this incredibly reactionary, cruel government okay. is we will be mobilising people to push back right. against that agenda. In November last year, speaking to a crowd of supporters, you led the chant, quote, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. At the time you used that phrase, were you aware that many Jewish people consider it deeply inflammatory, hateful and offensive? So if I may unpack the chronology of events that led up to my utilisation of that statement, we had previously heard at that rally from Dayenu. Uh, Dayenu is a group of uh, people from the uh, Jewish diaspora mm -hmm. uh, who are opposed to the occupation and the genocide that is currently playing out in the occupied Palestinian territories. We had a member of the Jewish community speaking to uh, their life experience mm. of having felt as though they, in their own words, were indoctrinated and felt as though they had ideological blinders on and had fear of that statement alongside the Palestinian people. And that in coming to educate themselves and understand what had occurred in the history of, for mm. example, 1948 with the Nakba and the displacement of the better part of a million people, mm. the many deaths and devastation that came with that, but they came to understand that Palestinian freedom and liberation did not have a prerequisite of violence and that to hold to that view that Palestine will be free or freedom for Palestinians mm. somehow involves violence is an incredibly racist and problematic so, trope. So that doesn't answer the question. When you use that phrase, were you aware that many Jewish people consider that to be a hateful and inflammatory phrase? And I take my lead from Palestinian and Jewish peace activists. That doesn't answer my question. Were you aware that many Jewish people consider that to be a hateful and inflammatory statement? Yes, Jack, I am aware of the fact that there are many differing views you, on this. You, so you, at the time you used that statement, you were aware that many in the Jewish community considered it inflammatory and hateful. Not necessarily the people who were there, mm. but that many in that community considered it inflammatory and hateful. When you used that phrase, you were aware of that? Yes, and I want to talk to the broader okay. context. Jack, no, 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 I'll, I'll, we'll bring up the broader context. So your, your colleague, Ricardo Menendez March, used the phrase on social media back in 2021, and you were tagged in the post at the time. According to the New Zealand Jewish Council, after they expressed their concerns, you untagged yourself from that post. Is that correct? I don't recall. Is it true that after they expressed concerns, you met with students and teachers at the Karima Jewish School in yes. your Auckland Central electorate? People with knowledge of that meeting say you were told by the school in your electorate that that phrase was inflammatory and hateful and could even be interpreted as calling for the genocide of the Jewish people. Is that correct? Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to recall the specifics of that, but I also recall that I continue to hold true to the kaupapa that Palestinian freedom is necessary if we are to have uh, long-standing peace and justice in I don't, the I don't think anyone is, is, is opposing that statement. It's whether or not using the phrase that you chose to use could be interpreted as being inflammatory and hateful. So I, I want to know, when you had the meeting with the Kadima School in Auckland Central, people with knowledge of that meeting say you were told it was inflammatory and hateful. Mm -hmm. What do you recall? Uh, I recall that that was, yes, uh, along those lines, that would have been the views that right. were expressed. So, but Jack, so, so again, no, 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 hang on. So the Green Party has long expressed concerns about hate speech. Mm. Given the widespread and extremely well-documented concerns with the term that you used, do you believe it was hate speech? No. And if I may have a moment to unpack precisely that. As I was alluding to before, I believe that there is a deeply problematic and intentional misunderstanding that is being painted across the Palestinian people here, whereby there is some presupposition that freedom for Palestinian people who have been living under mm. occupation for decades now and are presently being subjugated to a genocide. Mm. We are talking about tens of thousands of people who have been murdered in the last few months, approximately half of them children, and we are talking about advocating for their freedom, and that freedom 
is being painted somehow as violence. No, see, this is, or, this is, the, this is the problem, right? You, you had an option when, when you were there, when you were speaking in public. You had been warned by Jewish people that the phrase could be interpreted as being inflammatory and hateful. You'd gone to a meeting with a Jewish school in your electorate in which people in your own electorate had said that term could be interpreted as being inflammatory and hateful. And yet, you chose to use it. You could have used an unambiguously non-offensive term in support of the Palestinian cause. 2468, Palestine should have a state. It is not so complicated. But you chose in that moment to use a term that is interpreted by many as being hateful. And perhaps that discomfort is something that we should lean into. Because again, I think that nowhere near enough focus has been paid to the genocide, which is literally playing out right now, and it's decimating the so, Palestinian so, so when people. You say, when you say the discomfort should be leaned into, in what way? How do you mean? In the sense that there is far more focus on a statement than there is on the violence that is playing out against the Palestinian people. But that's on you. People. You use the statement with knowledge of how the statement would be interpreted. So, so, so I, I see that you had justified it by saying you take your lead from peace advocates mm -hmm. and, and Jewish peace advocates. By that logic, if I were to use, um, to publicly use a term which some people in the rainbow community thought was hateful, but a few of my gay friends said was harmless, are you saying that would be okay by that logic? I think that that's an incredibly reductive way to progress this argument, Jack, because if but, I but may... It's again, exactly but, the same logic, right? No, but the logical consequence of what you're asking for here, for me to back down mm. from utilisation of a statement, which is used the world over, and might I say the pushback against has been used to silence advocates for Palestinian freedom, mm. uh, is that I would then be exposing advocates, activists across this country and their use of that statement when, when they are coming to rallies across the country to advocate for Palestinian freedom. I am not interested in the semantics of that statement. I am interested in using the privilege of my platform to advocate for freedom of Palestinian people, I, least not, of all against the genocide that is presently playing out against them. I am not you interested in the semantics of that statement. It goes against this statement of Chloe Swarbrick, May 17, 2019, words have consequences. Words do have consequences, I agree with that. And I'm grappling with those consequences, including right now and having this discussion with you, Jack. And I hold true to the fact that we should lean into that discomfort and we should interrogate it. Why is it that that statement of Palestinian freedom causes so much discomfort? Because in fact, I believe that in interrogating that, because we have the Because people interpret it as calling for the genocide of the Jewish people. And that's an interpretation that we should interrogate wholesale. Is it correct you attended med uh, mediation with the Human Rights Commission? As it's been reported, but again, I think that it's really important here to be clear about the fact that Human Rights Commission processes are confidential. What was the result? Can you tell us that much? I can't disclose that, Jack. It's right. a confidential process. OK. Two and a half years remain in this parliamentary term. You talked about the power of movements even outside of government. Mm -hmm. What will be the primary climate or environmental focus for your party? over the remainder of this term. So I think that we only need to look at the government's agenda to have really clear clues of what the work is that we're going to have to do and what we're going to have to mobilise, unfortunately, particularly against. And one of the key pieces of that agenda is, of course, rolling back, uh, or rather the government's intention to restart oil and gas drilling in, for example, Maui dolphins' habitats. So we are going to see, I think, a massive mobilisation of people across this country. We've also already seen it, for example, in the movement for unity against this government's very divisive approach to attempting to rewrite Te Tiriti as well. What can people expect to see from the Green Party in response to that bill once it's introduced? 
I think that we have to actually reconcile with the reality that we are going to have a lot to fight for before that bill is introduced. Mm. And one thing that I was really heartened by uh, up at Waitangi over the last few days was just how unified people are against that dis divisive agenda. You know, I find it really fascinating that we have uh, the Axe Party and obviously this government going after Tinoranga Tiratanga, Hifakaputanga, and Titiritio Waitangi, which to me represents a phenomenal pathway for systems change for us as a country, not only obviously to uphold our international responsibilities, let alone our domestic ones with regard to Indigenous rights, but also to addressing the dual crises of climate and inequality. That is Chloe Swarbrick. Party member Alex Fawkes has announced his candidacy for co-leadership as well. Nominations close on Wednesday, with the result to be announced on March 10th. If you want to contact me or the Q&A team, please call it or my. You can email us, you can find us on X or on Facebook. Coming up, Wellington's water restrictions remain in place, but just wait until we tell you just how many leaks are currently draining our capital city. Hokimai, welcome back to Q&A. There have been renewed calls for independent commissioners to oversee Wellington City Council as frustration grows over the handling of Wellington's water issues. The council insists it's on top of the issue. Reporter Fina Owen shortened her showers and donned her gummies to gauge the scale of the problem. Another day, another leak. This one in Wadestown has been dribbling away for a week but got worse overnight. And here come the road cones. Wellington pedestrians are used to the puddles. Somewhere along my route I'll see a new leak pop up. There's been one further up, there's been a couple in the zigzag. So you need um, to wear gumboots to work really, don't you? I'm just like, all this leaking water. Standing here you can actually hear the sound of the water just below the tar seal. Listen to this. This leak is one of around 1,770 leaks right now in Wellington City and suburbs. We'll check in later in the day to see if this one's been prioritised. At uh, the start of this year, it certainly felt like a water crisis. Um, you don't think it's a water crisis now? I don't. Wellington's Mayor Tori Fano is upbeat. She says her meeting with Minister Simeon Brown went well, the city has staved off further water restrictions and the council has thrown $2.5 million at fixing leaks over summer and come up with a long-term plan to tackle and finance its water network problems. Problems that Fano insists haven't been ignored by council in the past. We've really put it to the top of our priority list uh, for this year moving so, forward. So you think you were prioritising it, but you we weren't... We were in the background. Yes. You were. So it wasn't a case of, you think, well, Three Waters is, is, is coming to save us, we'll rely on that, so we'll just spend a bit more money on cycleways? No, 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 no. I mean, th that investment with cycleways was always going to happen. Um, and it will continue to happen. Mm. Um, but I, th I think um, we were hoping that we would have uh, wider reform and be able to uh, put water infrastructure off our balance sheet. The CEO of Master Plumbers NZ, Greg Wallace, reckons the order is wrong. Cycleways will need to be ripped up at a cost in order to replace the ageing pipe network. He's offered up an army of private contractors to help with the leaks, but been rejected. So we've got solutions and we want to work with the council but we're also frustrated that we're having to see this across our city. I think um, 
the council is guilty of dithering on this particular uh, subject. I think that they could have come to understand what was in front of them and their need for action. Darren Ponta heads Wellington Regional Council, which provides drinking water to the four councils in the region, up to 45% of which is lost in leaks. Although the councils have all recently made the right noises about prioritising infrastructure, he still sees a need for Wellington City Council's affairs to be externally monitored. I do think that they could benefit from an observer who uh, could better guide them. Observer and commissioner, that has just been raised by, um, well I don't know, that's certainly not the minister. Um, um, and it's, it's, been raised by the, it's been raised by the chair of the regional council. By Darren yep, and, and I've said publicly that he's completely wrong. Greg Wallace has taken it a step further. This weekend, he's written to Simeon Brown, asking him to call in independent commissioners. I don't think the council and Wellington Water are taking this seriously enough to realise that the effect on that city. We can't operate a city without water. Across the leaky city, we're with those who have to live with it. It's been running all the way down the alleyway there, here at Island Bay. It seems every Wellingtonian's got their own water leak story, including me. On a scorching hot day a few weeks ago, I turn on the taps, no water. To report a new water or drainage fault, press 1. Wellington City Council tell me it's a burst pipe across the suburb. I get there before the Wellington Water crew. It's already been running like this for a few hours. The, the, the cause of it, where the tower seal has erupted. Look at that. All that water's coming through. Wellington Water arrives. Eventually, they're able to plug the leak, and that's great. Sort of. Ultimately, we're just band-aiding a system that's going to continue to leak and leak, and this city is going to be at risk of running out of water. When you say fix the leaks, Mayor, you really mean patch the leaks, don't you? Yeah, but, you know, um, maintenance, patching up the, the pipes, but we need, we definitely need, and that's what can be done in the short term, it would be better to completely uh, replace the pipes, which is actually happening um, in places like Taranaki Street, um, but that is going to take years uh, to, to complete. And a tonne of money. Much of it will come from rates and the council will vote next week on what capital projects they'll pause. The council's one of six that fund Wellington Water. Very tricky summer. Wellington Water's CEO, Tonya Haskell. We've got people who are rightly frustrated that we're asking them to conserve water when they see it running down their street. And you know we acknowledge that. That's a really tough thing to do. But on the other side of things, I'm seeing some great responses from people about, you know, putting their shower head in the bucket while the, while the shower warms up. But you need more money to fix the leaks. Ultimately, we're looking for more funding. The Regional Council planned to build more water storage lakes, but won't do it, its chair says, until councils get onto the leaks and bring in water meters. The public are having to do what councils are, are doing, and that is face the reality of their circumstances, and carrying on as we, uh, as we are uh, is probably just not tenable. Back where we started this morning at the Wadestown leak, it's all dry. Wellington Water have been and gone and left their patch. Fina Owen reporting there. In case you missed it, on Waitangi Day, we put together a special episode of Q&A to kick off the year, considering the government's impending bill on the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. You can see that episode by looking it up on the Q&A page on TVNZ+.
after the break. Just imagine if Kiwi comedian Tom Sainsbury went from mocking our politicians to leading our country through a bloody war. Yes, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has lived an amazing life. But is his international support running out? Hello? Good morning, Mr. Kolobarochka. Can I connect you with Angela Merkel? Yes, you can connect. Hello, my congratulations. We decided to take your country to the European Union. so heavy. Yes. Oh, oh, uh, thank you very much. All the uh, Ukrainians and uh, all of our country, uh, we've been waiting for this so much time. Ukrainians? Yes, Ukrainians. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's a mistake. I was calling to Montenegro. From satirizing his country's president to taking the reins for real as a wartime leader, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has lived an extraordinary life. But almost two years since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, this week Zelensky fired his army chief in Ukraine's most significant shake-up since the war began. Time magazine correspondent Simon Schuster has covered President Zelensky in depth in his new book. I asked him what the sacking of General Valery Zeluzhny means. Well, this decision had been a long time coming. Uh, the, the tensions between these two men began to emerge really in the first months of the full-scale invasion in 2022 as President Zelensky developed his own uh, ideas and priorities for how to fight this war on the battlefield, uh, where to attack, when to attack, how to use Ukraine's limited military resources. And they were not always aligned with, with the ideas of the general. Of, of how to use those resources and, and how to push the Russians back. So the clashes between them were playing out behind the scenes. You know, I was hearing about them all the time um, inside the presidential uh, compound, inside the administration. I was hearing about the tensions from the military commanders, and they were quite um, distracting, I would say. So I, I think, um, you know, there, there is hope now that the uh, hierarchy of the state under President Zelensky may work more smoothly now that these tensions have been kind of set aside. Um, luckily, there doesn't appear to be any any tension remaining after the general was dismissed. Uh, they put out images of them, you know, shaking hands and even embracing. So it, it seems like they have set aside the bad blood. Take us back a couple of years. You, you first began spending time with President Zelensky a few months before he was appointed. As someone who had built his reputation as an anti-perks everyman, how did he transition into power? Uh, he kind of stumbled into it. Um, when I met him in the spring of 2019, he was still a comedian, uh, a couple months uh, into his presidential run. And I met him backstage of his comedy show, actually, his comedy show in Kyiv. Um, and we went backstage after the show to, uh, to his dressing room to talk. You know, and I asked him the, the basic questions of what he intended to do, how he attended, intended to address the very grave challenges that uh, Ukraine faced at the time, dealing with then-President Donald Trump in the White House, trying to negotiate with Putin in the Kremlin. Um, and he didn't have very clear ideas. Um, he seemed quite naive in his ability, as he put it to me, to figure it out. He said, don't worry, Simon, we'll, we'll find professionals who can give me good advice. 
And, uh, you know, I'll certainly do a better job than these guys who have been in power before me. So that was kind of his attitude. Very happy-go-lucky, very mm. optimistic, quite a, quite a bit of naivete there, too. Um, that was the man I met. And But his, you know, evolution, his transformation into the kind of steely wartime leader we see today is, is really quite dramatic and maybe unique to history. How did those dramatic early stages of the invasion affect him personally? Um, well, his personal life, uh, one thing I should say is that his, his wife and, and their children uh, had to flee Kiev and they went on the run inside Ukraine, moving uh, from uh, between a number of safe houses, mm. uh, surrounded by armed guards all the time, um, you know, having to hide from uh, potential uh, air, air attacks, bombardment in basements and shelters. So he was immediately separated from his wife and, and children, and he went to live himself, for the most part, in a, in a nuclear bunker underneath the presidential compound in Kiev. His life became, well, a series of uh, meetings, phone calls, uh, to try to uh, convince the West, the Western world, uh, and the world at large, to stay by Ukraine's side. He became this kind of wartime diplomat um, and, and, and a wartime leader, at first, he left the fighting mostly to the generals. Uh, but personally, he was, you know, living in these very cramped quarters. Uh, it, it, as one of his aides described it to me, it felt like a submarine in enemy waters. And am I right in thinking he was particularly skilled in rallying international support, at least in those early stages? Yeah, I, th I think the skills that he developed, uh, you know, over 20 years in entertainment and show business did help him um, rally support in a way that I think other leaders wouldn't have been able to do. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking in particular about his tendency to speak not only to other heads of state um, over these kind of secure line telephone channels that they often use to communicate. But he, Zelensky, uh, once the invasion was underway, tried to speak to all of us to the voters who elected those leaders in, in foreign countries. Uh, he spoke, you know, at, at the Grammy Awards. He spoke directly to large gatherings of people in European capitals uh, using a kind of large video screen. And he would, he would appear before them and, and address them and try to inspire them to uh, build pressure from the grassroots level uh, that would make it very difficult for their elected leaders in those countries to turn away from Ukraine and not provide the support Ukraine needed. So that kind of showmanship that ability to really rouse emotions, to win hearts and minds, I think that's something quite unique that he brought to this war effort. Um, and it really, I believe, helped Ukraine survive. Simon, it's common that during wartime, civil liberties are eroded. Zelensky's government has suspended several rival political parties, taken TV channels off air, and because of the ongoing state of martial law, for now, the presidential elections have been indefinitely postponed. I know that the conflict is routinely framed as one of uh, Ukrainian democracy versus Russian autocracy. How would you assess President Zelensky's commitment to democracy? I think it's, it's something we all have to watch. I mean, his position is very clear when we've discussed this. You know, he says, look, look, at, look at the Ukrainian constitution, look at the wording of martial law. That is a, a document, that is a law, mm. um, and it lays out that uh, under uh, during wartime, the president uh, has the power to control the airwaves. Um, he uh, uses that uh, ability to wage the information war. And President Zelensky, I think more than most leaders, 
uh, understands the importance of, uh, again, winning hearts and minds through the information war. And, and he wants to use every instrument available to him. So in terms of, you know, uh, controlling the media inside Ukraine, um, he's adamant that that needs to, to happen as long as the war is, is going on. Um, he says, quite simply, you know, look, I'm committed to democracy. Um, when the war ends, when we achieve victory, we lift martial law and we go back to European democratic norms and institutions as before. Um, I think uh, I, I end the book on a note of concern, mostly because of the historical precedents. Yeah. So absolute power is difficult to part with, um, and, and it always becomes quite intoxicating. So I think it'll be a challenge for him to uh, to go back to democracy as normal, um, to give back control of the airwaves to kind of private uh, private owners uh, that can criticize him again, as they did before the invasion started. Um, I think that'll be a fraught transition, but um, it's one I think he's committed to to uh, carrying out uh, after Ukraine achieves its victory. Simon, you've spent a lot of time with President Zelensky over the last few years. The Ukrainian counteroffensive over the northern summer essentially failed, and many analysts see the war as now being in a stalemate of sorts. How do you think President Zelensky views his country's prospects from this point? Will he be prepared to compromise when it comes to territory? At this point, no. That, that is a non-starter. Uh, the main reason for that, I think, you know, a, apart from his own uh, commitment to winning back all the territory that the Russians have occupied, is that the Ukrainian people, according to all the polling that, that we've seen very consistently, do not want to trade land for peace. Um, I think if public opinion were to change, and this is a hypothetical, mm. but if the Ukrainian people were to grow so exhausted with, with the war... Um, that they do begin to say in, in public opinion polls um, uh, that they are ready for that kind of compromise, um, then I think uh, Zelensky would shift. He is responsive in that way to, to the will of the people. I don't think he's dogmatic on that question. Uh, in, many, in many ways, that is what Russia is counting on, for, for the war to exhaust the Ukrainian people, um, to, to force them into a compromise. So Zelensky's doing everything possible to avoid that, to prevent it. He's always looking for new ways to demonstrate victories, um, whether it's these kind of drone attacks deep behind enemy lines that we've seen recently with, you know, Russian oil terminals blowing up in the middle of the night, sending these huge fireballs into the sky. You know, these are the kinds of attacks that Zelensky um, favors, and he sees them as a way to remind his people and the world that Ukraine is not giving up. Ukraine is still fighting. So I think in the coming months, we're going to see more of that uh, kind of attack and, and that focus on um, behind enemy lines, uh, long-range drone attacks, missile attacks, things like that. That is Simon Schuster. His new book is The Showman, the inside story of the invasion that shook the world and made a leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. Hey, Q&A. Q&A is back after the break. Cool, Mutu, that is Q&A for this week. Thank you for watching. And now, mihi ki a karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey, Tera Wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9 a.m. QA is made with the support of New Zealand on here.